Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Bhutan is not the Shangri-La that many perceive. Dr. Ricky Krins, one of the world's leading authorities on Bhutan, will be joining us today and highlighting the massive human rights abuses. There are over 120,000 refugees. This is Radical Truth. Good afternoon from our studios in Amsterdam. Today we will be hosting an Ask Me Anything with Dr. Ricky Krins about Bhutan, the dark side of Shangri-La. I want to greet everyone for some technical issues. If you want to pose a question, just type it in the chat. Underneath, you'll see three emojis to clap, unsure, or go crazy. You can also press those to uh, give us some feedback on how you think. Uh, And after this, at 3.30, there will be a virtual happy hour that will connect you with Uh, everyone who registered for the happy hour. And there's also video chat, so you can um, chat with everyone, and including Dr. Krins, who will answer any of your questions. So let me pass it over to Dr. Krins, and she can start telling you about her experience in Shangri-La or Bhutan. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this afternoon and um, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon but, um, from the Amsterdam studio. I'm going to talk to you today about Bhutan and give you an insight in the actually the behind the scene of the gross national happiness and the Shangri-La, that image that Bhutan has nowadays. I will talk first about how I first went to Bhutan. Uh, what I did there and what led, what brought me to doing the, the impact investment project uh, after 2009 and also um, what happened after that. So in 1990, uh, I was finishing my studies for my master's degrees in anthropology. And uh, as an anthropologist, you have to, um, you have to do like the three to a half year uh, research in, in a different culture. Uh, I my dream always was to go somewhere where the, the 20th century was not so much uh, there, and to meet an authentic tribe or a group of people. So then I got the letter from the university. They were looking for people who wanted to spend a half year in a remote village in Bhutan, and then that 
was a huge opportunity, which I took with both my hands. In those days, there was not much known and there was no internet. And uh, so, um, yeah, we were basically three anthropology stu students and three irrigation engineer students were sent for half a year to Bhutan. That was the first encounter I had. And in those days, Bhutan was really a magical place. Um, there was no TV, no internet. Basically, it was still middle evil society. Uh, together with a woman who was doing studying uh, irrigation engineering, uh, uh, we were sent to a village which was a 12-hour hike from um, from the road, the only road um, into the mountains um, where we had to spend a half a year. Um, it was an incredible experience, and I learned what true sustainability means uh, because the people they still were living on a barter economy. Uh, money was not much uh, there and they didn't want it because they couldn't use it. There were no shops and they lived from three months, four months um, growing rice. And that was enough to cover the whole village. That was about 120 people in total uh, with rice and vegetables and eggs and, and protein they got uh, from, yeah, from the chickens and the, the vegetables they, they gathered in the forest, also the spices. So that is where I really got a deep connection with the country and fell in love with the place because it was also that women had a strong position, house and land belonged to them. And um, so it was a matrilineal society. The inheritance went from mother to daughter and uh, the men were very helping. Uh, there was no labor uh, difference, which is almost in a lot of Asian societies, a strict uh, gender rules which were not the case there. So for me, it was like unbelievable that this exists in South Asia. So where women have also the freedom of sexuality to change partners, uh, the children they had, um, it was not important who the bio biological father was. They regarded much more as uh, the, uh, the incarnation that was more important as spirituality. And uh, so every child was welcome and, yeah, and, and almost all the women had many children from different men, and that was not an issue at all. And also divorce, when uh, usually was so like if a woman fell in love with a man, the man came and lived with the family of the of the wife. Uh, they didn't marry uh, in Bhutan. When somebody sleeps together, a couple that's considered to be married, so it's quite easy. And so if the love was over, the, the husband had to leave and he went to back to his mother, which was often not so very nice to do uh, for the man and he lost face. So that was always an issue. But it gave the women really a strong position. And you feel that it's still overall in Bhutan, it's still the case. Sadly enough, with education coming in, modern education, English medium uh, education, firstly brought by teachers from India who really uh, looked down on this uh, freedom, so to say. Uh, so that changed, sadly, and also later to, because of TV and, and the role model of, uh, outside of the world. So it's often, um, like a professor told me once, a gender professor, he said, when modernity comes in, the women lose it. And, you know, I saw it with my own eyes. That's true. So after the, my experience uh, in, in Bhutan, I got my master's degree and then I got married and a child. And then uh, in 1999, so nine years later, I went back mostly as a tour guide 
to see there was an easy way to get into Bhutan because they had in in the meantime they they set up a tourism um, a scheme and which called is called uh, controlled tourism. That means that you pay two hundred fifty dollars a day, and um, so you you go, you travel with a guide and hotel and transport is covered. So, and about eighty dollars of that amount goes to the uh, is taxes. So that goes to the to the state, and the rest is used by the travel agencies to pay for the hotels and the transfer and all the costs. Um, then uh, I had a chance, um, because of my experience in the village, I wanted to do a documentary on the position of women, because what I experienced in the village, and um, which was wonderful. Um, so I, um, I was looking for a filmmaker, and I found one. So and uh, we wanted to do it, but sadly enough, uh, the project didn't uh, fly because the filmmaker was more interested in the royal family and not so much in a traditional traditional society. And for me, uh, I saw the uniqueness what it was in the village. So I was not interested in the royal family, and so then I let it go. But then uh, I got the after two thousand, I got the. Uh, I got um, the chance to do a PhD, and I took that uh, with also with both hands. So that was a nice way of going back more often, do research, and go deeper into the culture. Because uh, in 1990, I didn't know much about Buddhism, shamanism, etc., and I wanted to learn much more about it. So I had a chance, and I could go on a regular base, kept on doing uh, the guiding. And then in 2008, I had a group of um, high, you know, it was I was doing high-end tours. I had a group of Dutch investment bankers and um, CEO of former banks, etc., wealthy Dutch people. And um, one of my clients uh, in central Bhutan, because the hotels that came up were all run by families who didn't know what they were doing. So it was always very like bed and breakfasts, but the bathrooms were not correct. Um, you know, the, the, the rooms were a bit shabby. The food was always the same. So and in central Bhutan, one of my clients got a tantrum and very frustrated. He uh, spoke out, oh, my God, this country needs a hotel school because uh, he had no cupboard in his room to put his suit in. Internet was down. He couldn't check the, the, the stock market. Uh, then there was no uh, tonic for his GNT at 5 o'clock. So, so I think, oh, wow, that's a great idea. And um, then a day later, I was driving in central Bhutan, and, and my local guide, which I worked with, said pointed out a beautiful piece of land in Bumtang, and he said, my, this belongs to Gangri Tours, and Gangri Tours is the travel agency I worked with. Yeah, they want to set up a hotel, but they don't know how to do it. And I thought, oh, my God, this is such a great idea to do an eco-lodge and a, a hotel school. That would be fantastic. Maybe I have to think about it to do a project like that. So in the meantime, I got my PhD, and um, so I wanted to... Um, I was looking for a new project, and I have to say, you know, I love Bhutan, uh, but I like, and I always 
you know, had contact with people in the villages and these people I really liked. I never got involved with the royal family or with the elite because I didn't like them very much. And even in the village where I was living, they told me that the people in the village, that the king of Bhutan couldn't visit the village because then the the deity of the valley, Ketchup, Ketchup he would throw stones at him. So I thought, hey, that's interesting because, you know, Bhutan is in a way like North Korea. You have uh, images of the king in, uh, everywhere, every household, uh, huge billboards everywhere. So that this little community in the mountains had this uh, view on the royals. That was very interesting. Um, so uh, in 2009, I started to do to set up my project. Um, I, because uh, I have to say in 2008, the big change came into Bhutan. Before that, it was uh, still an absolute monarchy. The king had absolute power. So in 2008, they decided to become a democracy. And the fourth king handed over his power to his son, the fifth king, a young man of around the 30, in his 30s. Uh, so officially, you could say Bhutan became the so-called democracy, a constitutional monarchy, and uh, tourism, tourism started to boom. So a lot of hotels uh, came out, uh, you know, the, the, the Amman group built, uh, had built five lodges in, in, in five different valleys, but um, uh, the Amman group, they charge about $2,000 a night. So that was really very only for the for the happy few who could fly in with choppers and all that. So, but in the meantime, also some five star hotels came in, like the Uma in Paro and the Taj Mahal in of the Taj Group, not Mahal, uh, the Taj Group in in Timpu. And uh, but all you know, all these hotels are hotels that could be set up in Vietnam, in Thailand, or, or you name it. So to um so if you uh, set up a hotel uh, i was reading one of the questions but i come later to that so i'm going to finish my talk first uh so in 2009 uh, i decided to set up the learning exchange foundation and was very idealistic because the hotel school i wanted to set up as a non-for-profit and to finance that with donations and um, and for the hotels, the for-profit, the Ecolodge, uh, I set up a LTD and um, a separate structure. So to come back to the hotels, because what I saw with the the, the five stars coming in, five star hotels coming in, they were very expensive. They they were you know they were nice, but nothing special. So I thought in Buntang, in that beautiful piece of land, if we would do a hotel like an eco lodge, you know, really uh, off the grid with the newest sustainability uh, uh, things in place, um, all green and and organic. And do it as a home of the nobility, because the nobility in Bhutan, they have beautiful farmhouses where they have their own temple, where you can meditate. I think a hotel like that, that you are guests of royalty or nobility. And no, that was a fantastic idea. But I started in 2009 with the, with the project. And, and at that time, also in the capital, 
in Bhutan, they, uh, they decided to set up a FDI so we could do a foreign direct investment uh, registrations that would give us some tax benefits and also that we could stay in the country because, you know, it's a very close country and you it's very uh, difficult to get in, and let, let alone to stay there. And in the meantime, I was doing uh, other projects like I organized and financed a seven-week uh, invest in, in private leadership program for 50 unemployed youth, Bhutanese youth. We I, I did that together with some professional people who are working in that field. And because I saw with a lot of uh, children, because my, mind you, in 1990, most kids of Bhutan didn't go to school. And only after 2019, they set up schools all over the country, English medium schools, and those kids went to school. But Bhutan is one of the smallest economies in the world. So all these kids come from school and they don't have jobs and there is no access to jobs. And the parents are often illiterate. They uh, push them to become uh, a, a, um, a, um, a civil servant. And of course, every year there's only a few hundred people who can get jobs as a civil servant. And the rest of the kids are just you know, left in limbo. They had to go back to the villages and become farmers with, uh, you know, like 200 years ago in Europe. So that is a lot of, that created a lot of problems. And I saw uh, that tourism, that was the only growth sector in the country next to hydroelectricity, but hydro hydroelectricity only has jobs for some engineers and not for, for a lot of young youth people, young people. So I thought a hotel school would do the job in the sense that there is so much, there was so much demand for, for trained people and also to fit to the policy of Bhutan to go for high value and low volume. So you need to offer something special to people who pay $250 a day to come to the country. Um, so saying that, so I started with the, I had set up the foundation, I, uh, I set up the, the LTD, and then I was uh, proposing uh, to investors, but that was very difficult because 2008 was a major crisis and that went on. And so after three, four years uh, struggling alone, uh, I found an in a seed investor, a gentleman from Italy who loved my project and said, I would like to come on board and help you. He was a banker. He had put in the first money and we, with him, uh, we made a whole uh, very professional uh, investment deck and we were looking about 300 million uh, three million, sorry, uh, for the first lodge and then uh, to, to roll out five more in the country. So it was very ambitious. We had the land, we had a local counterpart, which was the travel agency. They loved that they were, that we were helping them. And then, uh, for the non-for-profit, um, I thought, you know, to rent the old hotel, uh, refurbish it to a three-star hotel. And then use that as a training facility for the school as a, you know, a small hotel with 10, 15 rooms and then a dorm for the kids and some classrooms and make a professional kitchen. Okay, by, uh, you know, developing the, the, the whole business plan and de-risking it as much as possible, etc. I learned so much. I learned that it's easier to find, to ask for 300 million than for 3 million. So because of the due diligence and all that. 
So then my partner said, you know what, uh, let's start with the hotel school and uh, I will put in the first money and then we get that off the ground. So he invested about a hundred thousand and with that money we could um, uh, redo the, the, the hotel that I found uh, in, in Paro. And the local counterpart was Mr. Norbu. He was uh, a very good counterpart and he wanted to do it together with us. We had fully support from the Ministry of Labor in Bhutan. And uh, so uh, we uh, we found uh, two fantastic young hoteliers, one from the Lausanne Hotel School, one from The Hague. The two of them, they developed the whole curriculum for the school and they went to Bhutan for a year to set up the school. And uh, but from day one, we had a lot of problems because they didn't uh, we had huge problems to get visas. Uh, immigration office, they just refused to give us the visas, although we had the fully support from from the Ministry of Labor. And it was very strange. And um, so we went up to the prime minister at that time to get uh, the, the, the visas for the, the two young men. And they had to wait for three months in India. And in the meantime, in India, they could do a lot of shopping for the school. And, you know, because we had to rebuild that whole hotel that we hired. But that should have been a warning already that it uh, was not easy. So uh, that, that there was something wrong. And, and we didn't know what it was because I thought, you know, we do something fantastic for the country because... Uh, they had a hotel school in the capital built by the Austrian development organizations. They put 10 million in it and the school was almost empty. It was, they, uh, they imported everything from Germany and from Austria. The machines, most of them were broken. Nobody knew how to fix it. It's the classic uh, uh, mistake a lot of development organizations make. So we set it up, you know, um, with the school developing and the students coming in, uh, I had a lot of material to show to donors and I started to do fundraising to show this is what it is. We need that kind of money. And lo and behold, it was the money came in. A lot of money, a lot of fantastic people, especially uh, in Asia. They supported us tremendously. And... Um, so then, you know, this, I just loved the school. It was so fantastic to uh, to have that project going on. We we built a pizza oven. We had pizza parties, and the kids they were all from very poor backgrounds, and um, um, uh, so they had a chance to learn something uh, decent, and they could get a job just like that. You know, after the, the the training was for a year and a three years internship, and all our school students they found jobs in five star hotels, even in India. Um, so um, now that was was great, but there was something strange going on because I had a lot of southern Bhutanese kids. A southern Bhutan, you know, Bhutan is a multi ethnic uh, society, but the, the the people from Tibetan uh, uh, descent they are in control. And in the eastern part, the, uh, the Charcho Pass is called, they're, they're originally from uh, Burma, Assam. And in the south, the people, uh, they come main, mainly uh, through the uh, centuries, they migrated there and start to live there. They're, they're from Nepali descent, they're Hindu, and they speak Nepalese. All Bhutanese speak Nepalese, by the way. But then I heard in 2090 already they were doing a census, and then they learned that the 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 the, the southern Bhutanese and the eastern 
were the majority of the people. So they started to become, uh, the fourth king started um, a policy. It's called Drichnam Namja. That's, uh, it means that all the people in Bhutan have to take the culture of the minority uh, Tibetan people. And they have to speak the language, which is called Zonka. They have to wear the clothes and, and all the customs have to be. So uh, it became so strict that the people in the South were not allowed to speak their own language anymore. Uh, if police heard that they were speaking Nepali, they had to pay money. And it became even worse. They were not allowed to wear their clothes, although the South is uh, tropical and the North is cold and they have woolen clothes. So for the South, it was not very pleasant, even with funerals, because they're Hindu, they have to wear white. Um, so um, it, it was a very discriminatory uh, approach. And, and also a lot of people didn't have access. They didn't get an ID card. And without an ID card, you cannot do anything. You don't have... Uh... So when that happened, you know, this massive discrimination that led to a genocide which I even didn't know at that time that was going on. And also the world didn't know. They all looked away because it was at the same time when Rwanda was happening. So um, people, you know, were mostly uh, looking toward that corner. And so what happened in Bhutan was almost forgotten. But 120,000 people were displayed. They were uh, young men who uh, who came, you know, there was a demonstration organized in the south. Uh, they got shot. Two people died. Uh, a lot of people were thrown in jail. They'd been tortured. Um, and they were called anti-national. And, you know, to be called an anti-national before 2008 meant you could get death penalty. And after 2008, with the democracy in place, you get life sentence. So there was a lot of horrible things going on. And I didn't really uh, realize it. I just heard rumors, but I couldn't believe that almost 20% of the population was evicted from the lands they were living on for generations. And, and, and the world didn't do anything. So in the end, most of these people ended up in a camp in, 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 in Nepal. And in the, uh, around 2009, eight, they were all, um, taken in. The UN had uh, organized, uh, they tried to get the people back to Bhutan, but the Bhutanese didn't want to talk about it, the Nepalese didn't want to uh, deal with it, and the Indians didn't want to deal with it. So these people were stuck with, between three countries. And so the UNCR, they decided to take in, um, the, the divided people among uh, the Western countries like America, the Netherlands has 320 of the refugees, former refugees, Australia, UK, so they are now um, uh, displayed, or I mean, they're now uh, in, in Western countries. But it's very sad because I'm involved with them. A lot of people don't know how to read and write. They're very isolated. And, you know, it's, it's a huge transition to go from a rural village living in the Middle East to a 21st century modern uh, society where you have to find your way. Okay, I like to uh, answer. I saw some questions. Uh, I like to ask some questions. Um, okay, shall I go back to the gross national happiness? Um, because I want to just talk a little bit about the gross national happiness. Because when the ethnic cleansing started, uh, the genocide, what, what you, how you name it, you know, you can look it up. If you don't believe me, Google it. World, you know, the Human Rights Watch. 
uh, has a huge report on it, uh, Amnesty International, you name it. There's a lot out there that, that, that proves what I'm talking about here. And um, no, I lost my thought. Um, Oh, yeah, going back to gross national happiness. Uh, when this happened with the southern Bhutanese, and there was also some discriminatory, uh, discrimination toward the people in the east, but not as uh, because the people in the east are, they are not so, the, 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 the southern Bhutanese they were also better schooled, and some of them had already quite good businesses, and uh, they were more more prosperous in a way than the people in the East. So they also got quite discriminated. But then the king came up with the slogan, uh, we want economic development for the country, but I want to be my people to be happy. So we have to aim for a gross national happiness instead of the, you know, gross national product with in, in with money, economic uh, development. So at that time, I was still in the village when I heard that, and I thought, oh, my God, this is really uh, brilliant because what I saw in the village, that was uh, almost like an ideal society. The people, they only worked three, four months a year. Nature provided everything what they needed. Of course, the, bad, the dark side was that uh, there was no medication and people died very young or babies died because of uh, bad hygiene. There was very bad hygiene. People never washed because it's a Tibetan uh, custom, but it, uh, but it was on low altitude. It was on, the village was on like 1,500 meters, so it was subtropical. And, uh, now, yeah, it was really dirty and, and the people were completely black necks. And, but it was also protection against bugs because they live so close with the animals and all that. So the gross national happiness was actually a an, an brilliant um, phrase of the king. And then uh, Jigme Tinli, he was the first prime minister after Bhutan became a, a democracy, started to uh, operationalize gross national happiness. And they set up a center for Bhutan studies to see how they could uh, include it, including this, um, to develop uh, a model to um, to index the, the happiness, uh, you know, uh, measurements and and all the the, the 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 dominions that has to be in place to to be able to measure it and to uh, what do we need but uh, I saw at the same time when i uh, when I was working you know when I was studying and writing my phd um that was i was bliss really blissful um with my work and I loved you know about Bhutan and all what was going on. But uh, becoming a social entrepreneur with the project, the hotel project, I learned about a complete different side of Bhutan. And that was very shocking. First of all, all the assets in the country, the, the major assets in the hand of the royal family, they control everything. So you can say democracy is in place, but it's a window dressing. It's, it's the real power is behind the scenes. And I noticed that a lot of people, when you talk about the royals, they become very nervous and they say, uh, they look around them that nobody listens. Uh, don't, don't talk about the royals. It's, it's, uh, you know, it was absolutely taboo. And also, um, you know, what happened is that, um, I noticed that they, they didn't. They don't like to have foreigners there. They they want foreigners as tourists or as investors 
but not to stay there. That was also the reason why they made our lives so difficult, that uh, that we had all the time we had problems getting visas for our trainers. And even when we wanted to do something like in, uh, inv inviting a, a celebrity chef to cook in the school and to give some, they, they always refused. So, And then the second year of the hotel school, uh, uh, a Dutch couple stayed the whole year there. They were managing the school. And they also told me, they said, they don't want us here. They treat us like criminals. So I noticed that something really uh, not right was going on. And and the more I got into the history and also the, the situation of the um, of the Southern Bhutanese, the more I saw the lie that was uh, going on and the, the, the massive propaganda about, and also the Bhutanese, I mean, they believe it because they get the whole day, everywhere you come, you hear how great Bhutan is, how fantastic the king is, and they worship the king and the royal fam family like gods. And even if you look into history, you could almost say that the, the king of Bhutan, of the first king of Bhutan uh, in 1907, he was a usurpator. You know, he was uh, Bhutan before 2009 was uh, a system like in Tibet with a Shabdung, like a Dalai Lama with a theocratic uh, uh, head of state. And the British, uh, they helped the, the Wanshuk dynasty to get uh, into power. So it's it's there's a lot of things that's not right there. And that is still what I noticed. And then, of course, the, 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 the major important part what happened to me personally was that in 2016, in November, I was waiting for my visa to go back to Bhutan to inspect the hotel school and, and, and all that. Then I learned I was blacklisted. The immigration, my local counterpart, Mr. Norbu, he uh, checked to get the visa from immigration and the immigration officer said to Norbu that I was a persona non grata, that I um, yeah, was blacklisted. So Mr. Norbu called me and he said, what did you do? He said, what do you mean? Uh, uh, what do you mean what I do? Uh, I didn't do anything. I helped uh, a lot of people and young people to get jobs. So, yeah, you blacklisted. He said, what? Yeah, you blacklisted your persona non grata, and I couldn't believe it. And I think you know, I was shaking, and no, it was a major blow. And now, yeah, then I learned the about the. Then I got in contact with all the refugees and 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 heard the stories, and you know that that was basically what what happened. And then I learned the the dark side of 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 a country like Bhutan. And the worst thing is is that the royals and the diplomats they. They don't, they just ignore it. They don't reply to emails. You can send letters. They, they just do as if it's not there. And that's a quite brilliant thing to do. But I think in the long run, you cannot cover up something like this and what they did to so many people in the country. You know, I don't live in, in, in Bhutan. So for me, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's painful. But for those people who never can go back, it's it's a nightmare, and I speak speak with them on a regular basis. And they tr they have now a Dutch passport or an American passport. They want to go back because a lot of have their parents still there. They're old. Some have fam family in jail. They're political prisoners, and they as soon as they see born in Bhutan, they don't get a visa, which is you know is such a huge abuse of human rights. And now in the time that 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 we all see the injustice in the world, that's hard. So let me see if I can see some questions here.
Yeah, Robert, can you help me in, in that? Because I cannot scroll. See? Ah, okay, thank you. Uh, okay. Is there any infographic on the index? What Tony Eng is asking me that. I don't understand that question. Sorry. Graph. Is there a graph, a photograph of how the index works? Which index? The gross national happiness index. Uh, oh yes, I think if you um, if you want to look at the gross national uh, happiness index, I think there's a lot online. Uh, just Google it, GNH, or you go to the Center of Bhutan Studies, and then you can see uh, everything there is about it. And Tony Eng is also asking me, what is the current land ownership structure in Bhutan? Is it communal based or leased? based. Um, it's leasehold based. Um, there is a, a a lot of people, you know, all the all Bhutanese families, their own lands. And uh, they can, uh, if you as a foreigner want to do something in Bhutan, it's I think the same uh, system as many Asian countries based on you need to have a counterpart or you can lease it for 20 years or, or uh, but I think you have to have a Bhutanese involved. Oh, some uh, Robert Rubenstein did said something. What is the tourist demographic to Bhutan? How many tourists per annum? Is tourism the right approach to help Bhutan? That's a very good question. Sorry that I say that because I learned that, that not to say that is a good question, but I say it anyway. Um, um, Bhutan, um, the Center for uh, the, uh, the Ministry of Tourism, they invited McKinsey some years ago to, to make a report about how to boost tourism. And, um, you know, they have the $250 a day uh, quota that you have to pay. Um, and now uh, the peak of tourists, the last time I was there in 2060, were about 100,000. It sounds uh, not much, but um, mind you that in Bhutan there's only one road that goes from, from west to east. And uh, if you have too many, like if you, um, McKinsey was uh, reaching out for 200,000, and most of them would come in from uh, March to June, and then again from September to December, and the peak months are April, uh, are April March, April and uh, October, November, because of the rainy season. And in the winter, it can snow. It's beautiful in December, but it can be very cold, freezing. On the, you know, depends on the altitude that you are. So all these tourists come at the same time. That creates a lot of uh, problems in the sense that uh, they're selling Bhutan as this pristine um the pristine destination where, where you know everything is intact with ancient old monasteries etc so but because of the expenses uh, most tourists go for seven days and stay in the west and it can be that that there is a whole line of people going up to tiger's nest or want to visit the old monastery which is not really nice or that day uh, I, I once had it that we were in a, in a traffic jam of buses going to the east so it's it's difficult, and 
um, to spread it. Uh, they try to spread it that more tourists come in the summer during the rainy season. The disadvantage of the rainy season is that you don't see the high peaks because you have beautiful views everywhere. Uh, but the, the, the nice thing is that the, it's nice and warm and uh, there's hardly any tourists. So that you, you're basically alone. So that is, And it's the same with December. But December, very clear skies. But at night, it's freezing cold and it can be snowy. And Okay, that um, is it the right way to approach uh, the tourism? No. And... You know, I learned that by by doing the hotel school because we had 12 uh, in the school. We had 12 rooms for guests. We had a professional restaurant and the kids had to train on real guests. So what happened was that uh, uh, but because when you book a trip to Bhutan, you pay a travel agency. Uh, if you want to go, let's say, 10 days, uh, $2,500 that goes to the travel agency and the travel agency books the hotels where you're going to stay and also the restaurants. So I asked a lot of travel agencies, I said, could you please send some clients to our hotel school because they will have the chance to eat really uh, um, uh, decent food and not the, the, the same, but they offer to the tourists all the time. You know, it's always a buffet and everybody cooks the same food and tourists after four days, they're sick of it. Uh, and they said, uh, we only do it when, when you, and they squeezed our, uh, the prices so low that we didn't, we lo lost money of having people. So that was, I, I was really very uh, disappointed on that. So uh, it, it doesn't work. Um, it doesn't uh, boost the economy. It doesn't give an incentive to people. There's so many young people who want to start a coffee shop, a little restaurant, you know, for the tourists. But they're not coming there because they're all going to the uh, to the uh, the hotels and restaurants where the travel agencies have a deal with, and all the money goes to the pocket in the pockets of the travel agencies. So there is something wrong on the system. It doesn't work. I hope that was the answer uh, that you were looking for. Of course, the $80 from the, the $250 that people pay, it goes to the government. So that, that goes for the, uh, the taxes. Uh, you know, that, that's okay. Uh, then Tony Eng asked me, how about social ecological activities in Bhutan? Uh, you mean um, sustainable activities? Uh, You mean in a tourist sense? Of I don't understand exactly what you mean with social ecolo ecological activities. Robert, do you know what that means? Oh. Okay. How long did this? Oh, that is Dan Daniela. Daniela, how long did this genocide go uh, go on? At the moment, um, there's still what my uh, my southern Bhutanese friends told me that there's still a, a couple of thousand people in a in a camp in Japa is the name of the camp in in Nepal, and a couple of hundred people are still in jail and they're lifelong in jail. And what I also found very shocking that they use the newest torture me methods on these people. I mean, I couldn't believe it. So, um, Daniela, if you want to have more information, I can send you some articles and um, etc. Hi, Arvind. Um, oh. Uh, poof, poof, poof. 
Why can you get a visa? Inge, Inge Ralph asked me, why, uh, why can they not get visas if they are political refugees? The Netherlands are open to give. Yes. No, I mean, um, the refugees, they have Dutch passports or American passports. All the countries that take the, took them in, they, they, they've been neutralized. Uh, but if they want to go back to Bhutan, they are not uh, given visas to enter Bhutan. And that is because in, in the, in the passport says uh, born in Bhutan. So that's the problem. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it just, the, the human rights abuses just go, goes on and on. It's, uh, and they keep it quiet. So that, that's the problem. I wrote to, it's so bad that I was on Twitter and I tried to raise awareness about this. There's some young Bhutanese who just, you know, give me death threats. So that that uh, and and they have no clue about their history. They are not taught at school about the history of their country and all this. So uh, they the young people are ignorant. And fifty percent, more than fifty percent of the Bhutanese population are under twenty five years old. And also to tell you the truth, um, that was in two thousand ten. There was an article. And it was, it's true, a lot of young people commit suicide because uh, there is no, no, they, they try to leave the country. They have, there are about 800 uh, illegal Bhutanese in New York. They went there for, for, you know, visiting or tourists or whatever, and then they stay there. And, and then the suicide, that is a, a picture that Bhutan doesn't want to show the world. That it's all constantly the rhetorics about the kings and, and how wonderful they are and etc. What sectors are oh, Peter Buck? Berg? Yeah, I can on, only read Peter Berg. Uh, what sectors are the main drivers of the Bhutanese economy besides tourism? As I said, it's only, you know, hydroelectricity in the dams. They, they build dams with the help of India. That is, uh, that they generate uh, clean energy, uh, and export the energy to Bangladesh and India. And, and tourism, that's it. So, you know, we have 700,000 people. 90% is self-subsistence farmer. So, and they hardly have access to, to money. And also the problem of uh, the infrastructure is so bad. Uh, they cannot, um, bring their produce to the, to the central market because that's a huge opportunity there because Bhutan had, a, and that was also what made me so incredible. Um, hopeful to that this country could make a difference because in 1990, when I was uh, studying uh, how people grow their rice, they had ancient old rice uh, seeds they used and it was all organic and they could trash it with their feet and, uh, and it was delicious. And I had, I was there, the, the, the research was there to see if we could uh, have these people grow three crops instead of one with the miracle seeds, you know, from the green revolution, which was horrible. They, they all, you know, they needed pesticides. They need to, uh, uh, fungicides. They had to buy kerosene because, uh, to, for the, for the mill to trash the rice. So it was all, you know, going back. And we, we gave a, we wrote a report and we told the, the government that Bhutan has the chance to, to do something different and become organic. And, and the produce was of such a high quality, you know, the, the, the mushrooms that grow there, the, the, the young ferns, uh, delicious stuff. That, that would cause huge price, good prices on, on, on the world market if you market it well. So sadly enough, they, they just, 
you know, they try to do something, but then the, 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 the civil servants are just not interested. And a lot of farmers tried to do it, but then they didn't get help and they lost a lot. So it was a disaster. But um, but they could have made a difference. So that's really, um, uh, that was a question. And then I have another question from Daniela. Do you think there may be a gender aspect on what's happening to you, you being a woman? No, absolutely not. You know, Bhutanese women, as I said, it's, um, um, Bhutan has a very strong uh, gender equality. Uh, women are very much in charge, you know, they're, they're, they're in charge. They have a lot of free, freedom of movement. Most uh, own the money, uh, own the land, uh, the house, because the hotel that we hired, belonged to uh, to the wife of uh, Mr. Nobu and I had to deal with her and and I wanted to uh, we, we we agreed on, uh, on 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 the on the deal so I had to sign the papers and so it came on Tuesday evening and she said oh no no today uh, we cannot sign because it's a inauspicious day uh, please come back tomorrow because that's a good day for me for my star sign so no no I mean this is a, just a little anecdote which which why I like Bhutan so much so uh, uh, no women are a very very strong uh, position and a lot of them go to who, who can they go to good universities and you know they go away for four or five years and leave their children behind with their with their parents um, uh, oh Daniela you want to love some information about the um, the human rights abuse in Bhutan, I will send you. I, I just wrote a paper about it and also the about the fakeness of the democracy in Bhutan and how it works. And and uh, I'm not the only one saying that. There's a fantastic book from a southern Bhutanese who really analyzed it very well. And then you can see the truth, what is behind it. Uh, Tony, did you... Uh, okay, Jonelle. Hi, Jonelle. Did you get any reaction directly, uh, the Bhutanese government or former? No, I didn't get anything. You know, uh, I published my book, um, which was uh, blacklisted in Bhutan. And this is a, a big version, but there's a smaller version of it. You can order it at Amazon and, and, and a Dutch uh, ball.com. Um, and um, I didn't hear anything, but I heard from the refugees. They said I was famous in Bhutan because they were all talking about it. So I don't know. They never talked to me, but uh, I give it a lot to students. They contact me from uh, the college in, in the east of the country, and they ask about it. And I said, yeah, sure, you should learn about the history of your country and what was going on. So... I spread the word there. So uh, I think a lot of Bhutanese heard about it. Okay, T Tony Eng, isn't it contradicting uh, to impose the flawed GDP uh, to a Bhutan way of living, degrowth, economic development, creation, urban woes, and mental health? <laughs> oh, yeah, mental health. That's, um, yeah, that's, that's a big issue. I had a long talk once with the own, there's only one psychologist in Bhutan and this is an amazing man who had his brother. The brother was, uh, had, was schizophrenic. And, um, you know, what usually happened in a country like Bhutan, um, when somebody has a mental health issue, they are uh, regarded as possessed by demons and they often are locked in, in, 
dirty holes or uh, on chains in the kitchen. It's horrible. And this doctor, he saw that was going, and he saw his own brother, and he said, "I cannot that happen that to me, to uh, to him, and to our family. I want to know what's going on, and I want to learn what kind of medicine I need to give it to him." And so he studied uh, psychology, and he, I think, he went to India. And now he's running uh, a mental health department, uh, which is very basic, nothing fancy. Uh, so, but that that's a it's an issue, and it's very neglected, and um, basically still a taboo. And you know, the way of living is uh, you have to uh, picture a small country, the size of the Netherlands, the size of Switzerland, with only seven hundred thousand people. Uh, they live very remote, remote villages. Most people have to work, uh, walk from one to three days to get to their villages. So there are some uh, small towns uh, like Timpu uh, in 1990 in the capital. There was only 10,000 people living there. Now there are 100,000. So it became very urban and it became very polluted. So there are open sewerage. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, they use a lot of the garbage are uh, dumped in the forest. Uh, actually in Bumtang, in a, in a pristine place, uh, uh, forest, there was, they were dumping all the plastic. And so there is not really, uh, uh, a way of dealing with, with the, the whole garbage. And although they say they are the green, you know, that they are sustainable and green and da, 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 the Japanese, they gave some help by, uh, uh introducing trucks, garbage trucks in the capital. Uh, there's a lot of air pollution now because everybody who can, you know, uh, get a car gets a car. That brings us to the whole financial issue because most Bhutanese have no clue how to deal with money. So most of them are over the head in debts. So, uh, so there's a lot of, of issues and that has to do because the, they've been torpedoed in 20 years from the middle evil up to the 21st century. And that, of course, comes with a lot of problems. And we have to face that too. So we, uh, and they try to make a difference. Um, but, but that, that has a, that costs. It, it, it's, it, it, yeah, a lot of people had uh, to suffer because of that. So there's another, uh, uh, isn't it contradictory to impose the flow? Okay. Uh, ah, yeah, Daniela. Uh, is it possible that the royalties are not aware of what happened and just think everything goes right? Uh, uh, no, they know very well what's going on, very well, because the fourth king who personally uh, started this ethnic cleansing. So that, that, because he was worshipped as a god, because, you know, if you look at it, um, what this man done, first I thought is, you know, uh, Bhutan became in the nineties, uh, it was the, 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 all the development organizations loved it. Everybody wanted to have an office in Bhutan. Everybody wanted to throw, throw money at Bhutan because they had good governance. They had free education. They had free healthcare for all their people. The most remote uh, villages got schools. They had health, basic health units for free. If somebody had was sick, uh, they would send to Delhi for treatment on cost of the government. So Bhutan became this welfare state. This 
incredible. And, and then the king made sure that Bhutan joined the UN, that it became a sovereign state. It, basically, it's a protectorate of India, but the internal affairs, they are sovereign. They have their own currency, they have their own rules and everything. So it was a success story. At the same time, this genocide was happening. That made it so, so if you, if you look at it and think, oh man, and, and if you destruct uh, deconstruct all um, what, what's going on and then you see what well, this is a brilliant mind behind this how they set it up you couldn't believe it you know and um, anyhow so uh, no no the royals they know very well and it's a big family and they for example uh, if you have you know in a nightclub uh, picture this so there is a you know, I know that from my my one of my guys he was in a nightclub and he had a nice girl. He was dancing with the girl. Then one of the royals came in. He didn't know it, that he was a prince. So he was dancing and then the, the prince came and he wanted to dance with the girl. And uh, yeah, the, the, the Dutch guy said, no, uh, I'm with the, the girl. And, and, and why? why? No, this is not right. And then everybody in, in the club came quiet and, and sat down and, and and faces became like stone. And then he said, oh, you have to, uh, otherwise you're in deep, pro uh, uh, deep trouble. So he had to hand over the girl and the girl couldn't do anything to that guy. And and, and everybody afterwards said, Phew! so that is the way they, they deal. And, um, you know, and, and, and even if you, you bump into them, you have to be careful. It's, it's, they can do whatever they want and nobody can touch them. So that's based the story. Um, um, uh, Daniel, oh, they just cared. It's also terrible. Control. Yes, it is. It is absurd. You know, if you, and I was so blind for it. So, so many years. Thomas, uh, Thomas Witt is asking me, sorry, does it mean that the agricultural sector is now contaminated by pesticide fertilized protection seed or was it only a period? So for, yes, um, what we advised the government in those days to leave the remote villages alone and keep them as organic. And if, and because they want to look into uh, a modern way of um, farming, to create food for, for their own market, especially rice, because they didn't want to be depending on India of importing rice from India or Bangladesh. So there are uh, regions like Punaka, it's a very uh, fertile valley. There's a lot of normal, as we call it, you know, the um, um, uh, way of, do, of growing rice with the using pesticides and, fung and, and all that. But there are still also a lot of areas that are organic. In the capital, at the weekend market where all the farmers can sell their produce, there's a, a special department for organic foods. It's small, but uh, it's there. So it's it's still there. How do uh, Inge is asking me, how do you balance tourism and development with the preservation of probably the last deeply pure Buddhist culture? Sorry, I have to address this. I missed the first bit of intro. Yes, um, yeah, Buddhism is is all over. It's a living spirituality. I have been to Tibet last year and I saw what what's happening there. And um, so the Bhutanese are first of all animistic, and secondly Buddhist because Buddhism is complicated and they see it mainly as karma and in, in, uh, reincarnation. So you have um, 
you live a good life and you and maybe you have a better inclination in the next life. That's basically what it is. And uh, tourism hardly has an impact of it. Um, um, it's uh, the, the Bhutanese are very good in protecting their heritage and also temples where other, where tourists are not allowed. So they opened up. Uh, there are so many uh, small ancient old lakangs that tourists don't go to. So uh, they do. They, they do a very good job, and because it's still um, uh, the numbers are not that big, so um, um, yeah, I can say um, the balance is, is, is it's very good. So, uh, but it's it's not like Sikkim uh, because in Sikkim uh, I like Sikkim very much because there are many uh, because most people never heard of Sikkim. And there are ancient old Lakangs temples, which you can visit. And you can even go talk to the monks and do a, a puja or do a meditation in these. That's often not allowed in Bhutan. So you have to ask permission. And if you have a good guide, they can organize that for you. But it's way more complicated than in, in Sikkim or Nepal or other countries. Um, then I have Peter Berg again, some luxury brand hotels like Amman and Six Senses, recent open hotels in Bhutan. What percentage of staff is Bhutanese in the case and how many experts are allowed to work in these type of property? Uh, do Bhutanese people get similar opportunities when it comes to management positions? Uh, it's a good question. Um, most uh, staff is Bhutanese. Uh, they've been trained by the hotels itself, and they took also. They take a lot of uh, kids from our school. Uh, our school, our kids, they did a lot of internships with the Six Senses and Uma, uh, not so uh, Aman. But I have to tell you that Aman pays these kids who work six days a week, twelve days, uh, twelve hours a day, eighty dollars a month, which is a huge scandal. You know, the, the a tourist pays eighteen hundred to two thousand dollars per night, and then they pay these kids that kind of money, which is in Bhutan also nothing. You know, a normal salary would be four hundred dollars or three fifty, four hundred dollars. Um, okay, and uh, usually the management is experts, and if you set up an FDI, you know, for direct investment with um, a business and a hotel, you're allowed about two experts, and they can stay one year, and then they have to change. So it's even there, it, it's it's complicated. It's not as easy that you can say, okay, I will stay there. Maybe the, the law, the, the, they changed the, the laws, but it was in those days, it was like that, that you could uh, have for a period of time, uh, for the kitchen, I think you could have an expert, and for management. Uh, yeah, that 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 was that was uh, mostly the case. And you know, a management position means that you had had a hotel school like Lausanne or The Hague or, or you know, like an international management training, and uh, you need that skills. And that is what yeah, Bhutan started that with the development organization from Austria, but it was not very good. So our, our students were better trained. Oh. Oh, Arvind cannot join, he cannot hear. Thomas Witt, uh, what happened in sports in Bhutan? I read about tour of the Dragon Mountain Bike Race. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was done by the royal family. Uh, 
that was done. The, the royal family, they always need money. I will tell you the scams they do. Uh, they, first of all, invest in five-star hotel outside the country, not even in Bhutan. And they have a bunch of hotels, so-called five-star hotels in the country. And they are run very badly because they have no good management. They're too cheap to, to pay people decent. And um, they, they charge $300 per night, which makes you your $250 up to $700 a day. And so they want to make easy money. And they don't have a lot of, Bhutan is not a rich country. They don't have resources and all that. So they come up with this uh, the, the tour of the dragon. I think you had to pay uh, about 100,000 US dollars and then you could join them. And that means that you can bike and you can hike and you can, you had access to, to certain places. And so it was, you know, it's like for the rich and famous. And that is what the royals do. They invite, invite, invite all the time famous uh, uh, celebrities from Hollywood, um, etc. And they put them in their own hotels and then they talk about, oh, can you do this? Can you do that for us? And promise them the, the, the world and, and it always end, ends with nothing. And that is what they do all the time. And then they invite thought leaders to think about how they could help Bhutan. And, and, and I had a letter from a thought leader who went to Bhutan. She was an advisor to the king and she was disgusted by it. And he said, and she said, it is, it is a Disneyland. It's not, it, it's not right. And also I speak more and more to people who supported the, the spiritual gross national center. The Ambuntang, there is a spiritual gross national center where Westerners can go to meditate and learn about Gross National, the Gross National Happiness Center, and they'll almost get brainwashed about it. And uh, I spoke to some who got really, uh, they got a lot of money from rich Americans mainly and rich Hong Kong people, rich Taiwanese. And they also saw say uh, there's something wrong there. It's not right. Anyhow, so... So this tour of the dragon is mainly there to uh, to enrich the royals, and um, yeah, that, that's how it is. Uh, Inge, uh, Bhutan is not alone. Absolutism exists alongside too many quasi-democratic states. Yeah, Thailand, many millions. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, that that's maybe even America. Sorry to say so, but uh, uh, L H president. Can you go back to Bhutan or oh, impossible? No, I cannot get, I cannot go back. They won't give me a visa. So end of story. Tony Eng, uh, there's a nightclub in Bhutan. Oh my God. Yes, of course. There are many nightclubs. And the, at night in the capital, um, I wanted to go to a nightclub and a lot of uh, young, young guys, they told me, don't go, madam, because it's very dangerous. They are gangs. They sniffing, um, uh, uh, this, um, glue and uh, it's a cough syrup with opium they take that uh they 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 fight with knives it's it's dangerous it's a, a lot of uh, and and bhutanese have no <clears throat> they have no um uh how you say control with alcohol you know they drink till they get into a delirium and it can be very dangerous so they start, you know, uh, cutting you up with a knife. And I, I saw that many times. And it's it's really very, very different. <clears throat> uh, Daniel's asking, so is the Six Senses Hotel better for salaries than Amman? Um, 
I know I don't know what the salaries of the six senses is. It is that one of my students worked for the Amman and she told me that she was earning eighty dollars a month. I know that the six senses treats the students, the, the the staff very well, and they get very well training, and they can also get sent out to Thailand, for example, which the kids love to go abroad. So that that I have to look into. I, I have to ask. I don't know that. So we still have uh, some time. So I don't have any questions anymore. Yes, yes, yes. Scroll up. Tony. Oh, oh, more, more. Uh, Tony Eng. Uh, in short, are you implying loud and clear Bhutan is a scam? The gross national happiness is a scam. The propaganda is a scam. Um, what they're selling and at, at the tourist tralala is a scam. It's a, I have to say, it is a beautiful country. People fall in love with it. it it's colorful. It's uh, spiritual. Uh, as soon as you get away from the capital, you're in pristine nature. Uh, it's it's beautiful, and and there are not many places on the planet like that. Yeah, you have it in Tibet, but you know I was in Tibet, and I saw there. I, I was uh, last year. I went from Nepal, uh, Kathmandu, up in all the west of of Tibet, and then I drove to Lhasa. She got uh, uh, all the old monasteries. I have to say, I was so impressed with the economic development and uh, I haven't seen any poverty. I saw the villages, they had uh, uh, new roads, they had electricity, the, the, the farmers, they looked prosperous, they had all electric uh, tractors, um, it was all clean. I was, I was so impressed and I thought, oh my God. Um, of course, there was no freedom, and and also the the, the, the temples are now now tourist uh, attractions, and Bhutan has it in a way too. Only they say the so their so called freedom, but it's not really true. There's not really that freedom. Uh, so the uh, the scam is what the royals want to sell to the world. That's the scam, not the country itself. It's not, and the, and the people are, are really wonderful and. Um, uh, so that's not the case. And but the problem with the propaganda is that there, if you constantly hear that your king is a god and 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 that Bhutan is so fantastic and that you're so lucky to be born in Bhutan, you believe it, and then you become uh, the Bhutanese have a tendency to become very arrogant, and they become like uh, almost like Nazis in a sense from we are better than the rest of the world and they do that to show they look down on Indians they look down on the southern Bhutanese uh, and that is not nice I mean that is also something I never liked and uh, to give you an example with Sikkim in Sikkim you can breathe there it's open and it's 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 not controlled there's no mind control Bhutan is so controlled so that that's that's an issue uh, let me see, where are we with the last question? Uh, oh, uh, mm. Daniela, is there any hope for the country? I'm honestly shocked and devastated. I was lucky to visit Bhutan 35 years ago. And yes, it was a treasure chest. I agree, Daniela. For me too, that's what I, uh, when I was in 1990 living there, it was fantastic. I loved it. And I was hoping that the country would stay that way and that they would learn. But sadly enough, it's uh, no, it's it, they, no, it, it, it could have be become the, the Switzerland of, of South Asia, but 
No. The, 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 the elite is too, uh, uh, the elite is too, uh, they're the bigots, uh, religious bigots. They're very, very, and also you get, after a while, I got really uh, um, a dislike of Buddhism because in Bhutan they just keep on, uh, uh, you know, pounding. Buddhism is the, the 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 best there is, and and if you're Buddhist, you know it all, and so it's all, you know, it's come on. Who else ad addressing the social pressure in Bhutan and what action are being taken by international parties? Very good question. Nobody. That's the problem. Uh, the royal family of the Netherlands, they are friends with the royal family in Bhutan and with the Thai elite and all, na you name it. Nothing is done. And they praise Bhutan for their gross national happiness and, and the whole charade goes on. That makes it so, that's what is, makes me so furious that, um, that very little people, little, little people of power do anything about it. They all want to believe the, the Shangri-La. And and, um, and and having this this mythical country in the Himalayas, you know, this far-flung mythical country, what we all Shangri-La, hoping that it was, but it's not. Uh, then um, Robert Rubenstein, uh, if if you had to advise the World Bank, where would you tell them to put money with economic sector of Bhutan? Oh, I would do the agricultural sector. That would be, they could, if they would, um, if they would improve the uh, infrastructure, could have, been, you could do it so simple because, you know, the most remote farmers, they have organic oranges, they have organic mangoes, they have cantarelle, you know, the, the mushrooms that grows in the forest that kids can, can. They have nake, which is a, a fern, a young fern, which is very highly priced. It's like green asparagus, you name it. They have all these fantastic spices, uh, everything organic from the forest. They only have no way to bring it to a market. And so you could do there a lot and, and, and do much more with... Uh, and basically just get the farmers at the table and talk to the farmers. I talked to farmers who had a, uh, in Paro who had, um, this, this grow houses from Japan and he was growing, uh, shiitake. He was growing, uh, the shizu leaves of high end products, you know, um, and he couldn't sell it but, and artichokes, uh, you name it. And yeah, in the high season, he can sell it to the hotels. But in the low season, yes, I got stuck with it because the Bhutanese don't know how to eat it. And, you know, to, to bring that to a market as, as Calcutta or Delhi or, or Bangladesh, that would be fantastic. But it's expensive to ship it by plane. So there needs to be, if that could be improved, that would be fantastic. That would help the country tremendously. Then there was, there could be a huge opportunity is like with Switzerland, do top notch uh, schools. Like I was hoping to um, do my hotel school there, like the Lausanne hotel school, make a, uh, a top-notch hotel school for Asia, especially to start with for South Asia and uh, really train the kids with international five-star standards of, of running a hotel. And that, 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 that would have been uh, a huge opportunity. How could the audience help you and the Bhutanese refugees? Tell the world what's going on. That's the that's the thing, you know, tell the world. That's the only thing we can do.
I bet some consul consultants advise the royals. You think so, Tony Eng? Okay, they can tell about me and they even get more pissed off of me. So, <laughs> but they, they don't like, you know, I think the reason why they blacklisted me, um, you know, one day I met a gentleman who, who uh, he owned five star hotels in Singapore and Hong Kong and, 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 and planes and, you know, a quite big player. And he was in a hotel in Amsterdam where one of the students, one of the first batch students, I said, one of the students who is the best this year, I take care uh, of that person to come to the Netherlands and can do an internship in a five star hotel in Amsterdam. So I arranged that. And so this girl came and she spent three months in the, in a, in a hotel here and there was this gentleman sitting there and she was serving him and she was specialized in food and beverage. So she was working in a restaurant and this gentleman asked her, uh, oh, where are you from? He was, she looked Asian and she said from Bhutan and she said, Bhutan, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, I work here. And he said, what? Uh, but I see that you are the only one who knows what, 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 what she's doing. So you are very professional. I see the other, the Dutch, they don't have no clue what they're doing. He said, yes, I went to hotel school in Bhutan. And he said, hotel school in Bhutan? What school then? And he said, she said, yeah, the, the Bond Institute for Hotel and Tourism. And, um, and she said, and he said, yeah, I'm staying with the lady who's, who, who set it up. And, oh, I have to, and this gentleman said, I have to meet this lady. So, he called me then and, and we had a meeting and yeah, he said his dream, uh, he lived in Bali, he was Dutch, but he owned, you know, he lived all over the world and owned all these hotels and, uh, and, and, and he was, he trained the Drukpa pilot, the first, uh, flight pilots in Bhutan and he knew the royal family, uh, himself. And he said, I will look into the situation why you've been blacklisted. And then, uh, he called me later on and he said, yeah, I found out. It was a member of the royal family, and uh, probably they didn't like what that what what you were doing, uh, working without them. Because I stayed away from them. Uh, because if you are in there, you lose your independence. You have to work for them and probably for free and all that. So so that's that's how I know. And he said, and he also told me that they invested a lot in hotels outside Bhutan and. Yeah, they, they, especially the four queens. The king was uh, the third, the fourth king was married to four sisters, and they became queen. And you know they are the most Bhutanese don't like them. They say the, the fourth king was a god, but he made one mistake marrying these queens, and they learned they they do everything to enrich themselves. So now nah, anyhow, um, does every your experience in Bhutan? Uh, does your experience in Bhutan invalidate the concept of gross national happiness, or can the idea be separate? Um, okay, this gross national happiness. Um, as a policy, because that's what it became. It became a policy. How can you have gross national happiness when uh, the first uh, things uh, that are that are that has to do with well-being for the society overall are not in place? That means there's no um, human rights are not respected. Human rights abuse. abuse. Bhutanese are not allowed to demonstrate. To go into see to demonstrate because then they're called anti-national. Um, it is a fascist regime. I sorry for the harsh word, but if you look at it carefully, it has a lot of elements from the fascist uh, way of of running a country. So 
okay, you can say it's a welfare state, and but and and it's a very poor. Most people are so poor, and they're living under the the, the, the poverty line, and they're not poor in in because they the because it's low dense, low populated, so they have access to food because the the soil is very fertile, so there's no hunger or anything. But I had talks with with, with young people in Buntang who said they they went hungry, and and so it's a so. I mean, the real happy countries are the Scandinavian countries, Switzerland. They're all very rich countries with a, a good working democracy where where people are well educated, and that's not the case with Bhutan. So, you know, it's very brave of a small poor country to go for the gross national happiness. But please start with respecting the people first, and and and. Uh, have your, your human rights in place and have a royal family that's not enriching themselves and give the, the assets to the state and not to the families, you know, like the airlines, the, uh, the Tashi the cell, the, the, everything what's there, the, the big things are all in, in, in the hands of the royals and the, they can take whatever they want. And so to me, that's not a happy place. Sorry. And any country where suicide rate is so high among youngsters, about 700 in a year. So, come on. Um, uh, but you could, uh, you know, the, the gross national happiness thing could be used as an aim from, okay, we're looking for that. But then you still have to start with respecting humans and not uh, do as you please. So... Yeah, that, that's for me. For, maybe for Asian people, human rights, what I learned, is not such a big deal. But for Western people, I mean, for me, it is. And, and I think you have to start there. At what age normally girls lose their virginity in Bhutan? Um, they have, as I said, sexual, sexual relations are very free. Um, but I think, uh, in the village, um, when I remember it was about 16, 15, 16, that was mostly that they had, uh, if they wanted, they could have relationships. I never, uh, uh, I have to say rape was a big issue. Uh, rape, especially by monks, they, um, uh, because, uh, most vill villages are remote and, and in forests and, um, uh, it was uh, 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 something that happened a lot, and I was shocked about it. But it makes sense in 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 a place where uh, girls were not protected because of the high level of gender equality and the freedom. Uh, that's the other side of the medal. If you have it, you can say as a Westerner, "Wow, great! These girls have have freedom of movement. They can do whatever they want." But they are not protected. And one uh, thing that was very popular in Bhutan, I think it still exists in the East, is night hunting. And that means that a boy who is in love with a girl can at night go into the house because they had wooden shutters, so not glass. So maybe now it's a little bit more difficult. Depends on how the villages are. And then uh, the whole family sleeps in one room. And then the boy uh, wants to make sure that he slept with a girl uh, of his choice and did his thing. So, as I said, uh, there is no stigma of uh, uh, young people, young girls getting pregnant and then have a baby. So, 
Uh, even my my uh, the girl who came to the Netherlands to do an internship here, she was so stupid and slept with a boy, and has a baby now, and now she's sitting at home. So that's that's a, an issue. So that is also in the school that we had to talk a lot about. You know, was almost life skills, not to get uh, to sleep with, with with young boys without protection and all that. But that happens a lot. So, but there is no stigma attached to it. But I have to say that now in the south of Bhutan, Phunsoling, which is bordering uh, India, there's no, there's a lot of uh, girls trafficking going on, you know, to brothels in India. That that's that's increasing because also of poverty. And what happened is that certain uh, tourists, old guys, go with girls, young girls, and promise them to take them to America. I heard stories of that. So that's a negative impact of tourism. But in general, the tourists are always kept aside from villages, not to not to mingle too much with the local population. So they take they they, they took care of that. Um, this, yeah, uh, Danielle was asking. Uh, I missed it. The, the school still running. Uh, I'm not able to go back, but the school is still running. I still support it financially. And also I've sent uh, uh, one of the hoteliers who set up the school last November to go there to do an, uh, an inspection. And it's still the best school in the country. So I'm very happy that uh, that also Mr. Noble took ownership and he's running the school. And of course, uh, they always need a new washing machine or, you know, things. Uh, and we, uh, there's still some foundation support, some scholarships for the poorest of the poor. And I also support that. So, you know, yeah, that's what Robert was asking. What can uh, uh, people do? Yeah, you can still support people in the school if you want, or uh, through my foundation, you can also support uh, refugees in the camp and make sure that it goes to the right people and nothing will, you, no money will used for other stuff. So it will go right to the people that need it. What else could we do to help uh, the people sustain sustainable? Uh, Thomas Witt's asking that. What what else could be done to help? As I said, just you know, with the school um, to to pay for a scholarship for one one poor girl girl or boy, it's about two thousand three thousand dollars a year, or support some money for for some from new new materials for the school. They always need that because we did the school on flip flops, or maybe even even not uh, you know to to be able to set up a full fledged hotel school with fifty students and now seventy five. Uh, because Mr. Noble built a bigger dorm, so we could uh, have more more students, and hardly any dropouts. And we gave former drug addicts uh, a chance. And these kids, they got ended up in 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 hotels in the W in Goa. I mean, it's it's a, a fantastic uh, success story, and um, and that, that makes me so sad that I cannot be involved with it anymore. And that's why I want to. Uh, I'm looking for a project to set up the same because the model works. And it's very inexpensive with a high uh, impact. Uh, I would like to set it up in uh, in more places in the world. Uh, but strangely enough, nobody wants to pay for it. So uh, there we go back. Uh, what good can Bhutan teach the world? Uh, I, I thought I was always very optimistic and we could learn so much from Bhutan. Sadly enough, uh, not much. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, they have to learn now from the outside world. Uh, 
It, in 1990, I said, Bhutan can teach the world so much about, but that's the, the simple farmers, because uh, with their organic tools, with the, 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 the animistic, you know, the animistic belief system uh, that is where women and, and men are equal, where animals are equal, where you respect the nature, where you respect the streams, you respect the forest, you do, uh, that, that, what, that we can learn so much from that, but we have to get away from the royals and, and, and the Buddhism, but we have to go to the shamanistic world, to the, 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 the true belief system of the people as it is in the villages. And there we can learn so, so much, just the respect for all living things around us, even stones. So that's fantastic. Tony Eng, can you email Bhutan Constitution to us uh, as Lina at Okay. Uh, okay, I hope I can have access to it. I have to to look into that. I, I'm not sure if I can. Uh, I try. I do my best. Okay. Oh, five minutes more. Yes, Daniela, I agree. Yeah, that the respect for for nature and and how to deal with nature and and yeah that that is fantastic and the, the living spirituality not so much to to the temples and and that's all you know it's all like the catholic church base, basically is is uh, you, you have you do some bad I, I had some very rich people bhutanese and they were treating their staff like like terrible but building all these these expensive lakangs with huge buddhas in it but, but um, yeah that that's not the way we have to go to the villages and learn from the people in the villages. That that's where the yeah. Uh, I wanted to visit uh, Bhutan again ne next year. Would you recommend me not to go and keep the nice memory? Hmm, just go, but try to go off the beaten track as much as possible. There you still find the old Bhutan, Daniela. Okay, more. You're most welcome. Okay, uh, please um, email me um, if you have any more questions or how I can help you. And if, oh yeah, I have my, my uh, maybe Daniela for you. This is my PhD book. Uh, I can send it to you for free. You just have to pay me for the, the, the postage. Um, so anybody who likes to have this PhD, on uh, it's a cultural study on Bhutan and uh, discussions. I can send it to you. Uh, I will uh, ask it and and you just pay me ten dollars for for the the shipment. That would be great. Uh, Robert was so kind to write uh, my email. Just email me there. And uh, thank you so much for joining us and um, and to listen to me. So stay well. Bye bye. Thank you to our guest and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe. Stay safe.